Accustomed as I was to an afternoon nap, Morrissey left me to my own devices as he decided to visit the local library before our five o'clock dinner appointment. I awoke then to the sound of my hotel room door being jimmied. As a former post office clerk, now postmaster, I knew the sound of a lock being picked. Many was the time I'd needed to access a post box when one of our delivery men had mislaid a ring of keys. I knew then that whoever was trying to access my room was no novice. The slick and pang of their lockpicking was neat and tidy. Whoever was at my chamber door was quite the experienced burglar. I had two options, stay in bed and feign sleep when they entered the room, or jump out of bed and hide. The latter option seemed imprudent. Not only did I not know how much time I might have to create a makeshift hiding spot, I could not guarantee that my movements would not be heard. I was, after all, sleeping off my afternoon ration of ale. I opened one eye very carefully to see if I could fix my gaze on the miscreant, only to see that there were two of them. In the dark of my room, I could only make out their general form. One was burly and short, while the other was significantly taller, and appeared to be wearing a hat inside. The fact that it was a topper made it all the more galling. They whispered something to each other, and then spread out across the room, carefully looking over my things. Then, without warning, there was a knock at my door. Tuddles! Tuddles, wake up, my good man! We must repast, and quick! The two men froze on the spot, one looking at me, the other at the door. Pluddles, I say do get up. My stomach is being most rude. Uh, coming, coming. I pretended to yawn and stretch as I sat up in bed. The two figures were still frozen in place. I fixed the fellow staring at me squarely in the eyes and then rubbed them dramatically as if I could not believe what I was seeing. Hold on, you don't to turn on the belly light. I reached for the lamp beside my bed, intending to turn it up. At this moment, the two men sprang into action, looking at each other with what I can only surmise was both fright and conviction. And then, with barely seconds to spare, as I increased the flame, they dashed towards the window and defenestrated. Pluddles! What was that? Morrissey, two men were in my room. Morrissey stared at the broken second-floor window before crossing the room to look outside. No sign of them. They've obviously made their getaway. The rose garden beneath your window would have made an adequate, if uncomfortable, cushion to their fall. Morrissey turned to me, and his face softened. I'm sorry, Pluddles. I should have asked if you are all right. I nodded in appreciation. Still, I think we have a problem, my friend. How so, Morrissey? I mean, aside from the break-in. They know your name since I shouted it through the door. And if these men are in any way attached to my old companion-turned-nemesis, Stickle, then they will doubtless put two and two together to get Pluddles and Morrissey. Rum, Morrissey. Rum. Indeed, Pluddles. We may need to disguise ourselves this evening. I am assuming you have brought with you your selection of moustaches. Indeed I have, Morrissey. The Spaniard? A little too exotic for Orderthrop, I think. No, I'm thinking maybe the French linesman, or maybe the Irish ramble. Smiling, I fetched my disguise kit. Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy, brought to you today by Josh Edison and Dr. M. Denton. Hello and welcome to the Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy. I am Josh Edison, sitting somewhere in New Zealand. Today, Dr. M. Denton sitting somewhere else in New Zealand. That's the kind of wacky, mixed-up world we live in. And that's all the information that we are willing to give you. Things are fine. How are things mm. in your nondescript part of the country? Ah, they're, they're quite literally things. Occasionally stuff, but you know. Oh, that's that is sounding a bit heady. Mm. I, I hope it isn't bringing up the old, old anxiety. 
No, well, it, I don't. Maybe that's a good thing. They've been they've been all in the news at the moment, saying now just just be ready in case we get another wave of COVID here. Everything's everything's fine now, but but we don't want to become complacent, which I guess is fair enough. Which some people have taken to be saying there will be a second wave, which has then caused other people to say, what do they know that they're not telling us? But I assume I assume all they're actually telling us is don't let your guard down and be ready for things to turn south as they have in other countries. Well, I think people are very much aware in the medical profession here and the government that countries which appeared to be doing well, like Vietnam Mm. and also Australia to a certain extent, are suddenly doing very, very badly due to super spreaders in their communities, basically. And we're going, well, we're actually not that different. And at the moment, we think we've contained the virus to the borders of the country, but that doesn't necessarily mean that someone hasn't snuck through who is asymptomatic and hasn't come up with a test because we have the problem of false positives and false negatives with respect to COVID-19. So it is possible there is at least one person with COVID-19 out in the community and we might not detect that for several weeks. And when we do detect it, it could be because there's a wave, so we need to be very cautious. Yes, so things are still fine here for the moment. Did you hear that loud door slamming? Oh, yeah. This is a hotbed of activity. It's true. There was a helicopter a helicopter circling the house not too long ago. Either. What kind of crime sure ring on, are you running? I don't... Uh, a, a car a car ran into the streetlight outside my house just last week. It's, I mean, it's madness. It it's bedlam. It appears to be a criminal hotbed of activity in your vicinity. Mm. What are you doing? Well, I don't know. I can only assume I'm some sort of magnet. Um, magnet enough about me. How do they work, though? Nobody knows. That's the point. So we should just uh, discard any any thought of them. I'm just uh, a juggalo. Everywhere I go. Sorry, please do continue. Do you know that that, that, that has never actually occurred to me? to juxtapose those two songs. Oh, I do it all the time. Yeah. Mm. Uh, No, anyway, anyway, as to the the episode to hand, um, it's it's another episode of Conspiracy Theory Masterpiece Theatre. Um, so things are this this one. I mean, the, the stuff we've looked at so far. There's been disagreement and back and forth, but it all seems to be fairly 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 agreeable. But this one seems to be a bit more contrary. So it should be a little bit a little bit more interesting. Yes, we are about to encounter, and I say this kindly, the grumpy old man of the philosophy of conspiracy theory, Mr. I should say, Dr. David Cody. Mm. Uh, And his paper, Conspiracy Theories and Official Stories. So unless you have anything else you want to get off your chest, uh, shall we pile into the episode proper? Indeed. Let's play A Sting. Okay, so this week we are looking at Conspiracy Theories and Official Stories by David Cody, which was published in the International Journal of Applied Philosophy back in 2003. That's volume 17, issue 2, pages 197 to 209 for those who are playing along at home. It has an abstract, Mm. Josh, that goes something like this. Was that my cue to say it? It was, yes. Okay, sorry, you said it like that, I thought, you know... 
Conspiracy theories have a bad reputation. This is especially true in the academy and in the media. Within these institutions, to describe someone as a conspiracy theorist is often to imply that his or her views should not be taken seriously. Perhaps this accounts for the fact that philosophers have tended to ignore the topic despite the enduring appeal of conspiracy theories in popular culture. Recently, however, some philosophers have at least treated conspiracy theories respectfully enough to try to articulate where they go wrong. I begin this paper by clarifying the nature of conspiracy theories. I then argue against some recent critiques of conspiracy theories. Many criticisms of conspiracy theories are unfounded. I also argue that unwillingness to entertain conspiracy theories is an intellectual and moral failing. I end by suggesting an Aristotelian approach to the issue, according to which the intellectual virtue of realism is a golden mean between the intellectual vices of paranoia and naivety. I like to say that you go na na naivety like I do, even though many people go naivete. Naivete. Well, it's spelt with a Y. We're not French. We 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 are English English speakers. At any rate, we absorb words into our own language like some sort of linguistic amoeba. I prefer to think of like more it. like a cephalopod, but you know, whatever floats your goat. Hmm. Uh, so. That's how it starts, and straight away, I mean, we can see, much like most of the commentaries uh, we've looked at before, uh, we've looked at already, the idea that yes, actually, you, you shouldn't just be writing off conspiracy theories entirely. It's it is a, an intellectual and moral failing to at least in, uh, refuse to entertain them. Um, but as we'll see fairly quickly, things diverge a little um, in the specifics of it. So. This paper mentions uh, Charles Pigden at the start and mentions Lee Basham at the end, um, but mostly it's a commentary on Brian L. Keeley's of Conspiracy Theories and Steve Clark's Conspiracy Theories and Conspiracy Theorizing, uh, which we've already covered in this, the in this series. So a lot of the stuff in the beginning is going to sound uh, familiar. But importantly, um, now, this is the first time 9-11 gets mentioned in is, philosophical actually, yes. literature. This is 2003, mm. and Cody is going to talk about how any standard explanation of 9-11 is a conspiracy theory when you consider a conspiracy theory properly. What is interesting, given it's a 2003 paper, there's no talk of the inside job set of conspiracy mm. theories. There's no Lee Hop or Me Hop because they have not emerged in the literature yet. So it's kind of an interesting look at a point where 9-11 is used as an example in the conspiracy theory literature, as an example of an official theory which cites a conspiracy without any of the weirder conspiracy theories also impinging on that commentary. Hmm. Um, so Dr. Cody begins um, basically by looking at the definition of a conspiracy theory that uh, Brian Keeley and Steve Clark both subscribe to and, 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 and taking issue with it in some areas. And um, I have to say, my, my on reading this for the first time, as I did the other day, my feeling is that there's a bit of a... Uh, I, I, don't, I don't know. There, there, there seems to be a little bit of talking at cross-purposes at times. Um, this re reading through it, it seems like um, Cody has a sort of a, an unstated assumption that the definition of conspiracy theory should match fairly closely the way it's used uh, in, in, in the common parlance, um, which is quite Aristotelian. Did you did you do ancient Greek philosophy? I did, yes, but I was never a bit... I, yeah. It's one of the things, right, you did quite a lot of it, but I still don't quite understand why we spend so much time on the ancient Greeks whilst ignoring recent contrib 
contributions to the literature. Mm. But anyway, I, the, the, one of the things I recall from from when I did it twenty something years ago now was that Aristotle likes to start a lot of his things by saying, "When we talk about whatever subject he's discussing, here's what we say," and he would use the way the, the, the sort of the, the, the way things are commonly talked about as a guide to. Um, to, to reach a, an understanding of them. Um, and so Cody does seem to be, although he doesn't explicitly say this, uh, what he says only made sense to me if we were to assume that he's thinking that the the definition of conspiracy theory we use should match the more colloquial ones. So um, right at the start, he... he he sort of he said, "Where is it?" He says, "This definition does not quite capture the ordinary usage of the expression conspiracy theory." And my reaction on reading that was, "Well, yeah, but like, isn't that the point?" Uh, I, it, it seemed to me that the likes of Keeley and Clark find the colloquial definition of conspiracy theory not not fit for purpose in an epistemological sense, and so um, they they. Are, have no problem with the fact that it doesn't actually ma uh, match the ordinary usage. Is that like that, that? That was that was my impression. But as someone who's a lot more familiar with the literature, is that is that what you see? So what's interesting about Cody's work is actually talking about this paper with respect to what he's going to argue in future papers. So you are right. There's something interesting about his appeal to ordinary or common usage, because in subsequent papers and most of Cody's recent work, he actually doesn't want people to use the term conspiracy theory or conspiracy theorist, because they are pejorative terms that mark out theories as being mad, bad, and dangerous, and they play a policing role of basically marking out things you're not meant to talk about. So Cody's current work is to go, look, we shouldn't be even bothering with a philosophical or psychological or cultural theory study of these things called conspiracy theories. Even engaging in the language is bad. And that kind of appeals to the ordinary usage stuff he's referring to here, where he's going, well, look, if we work with Steve Clark or Brian L. Keeley's notion of what a conspiracy theory is, then these things are going to be amenable to a standard analytic analysis of conspiracy theories which are rational to believe versus conspiracy theories which are irrational to believe. That's not how people talk about conspiracy theories in ordinary language. They always take them to be theories which are irrational to believe, even though the philosopher will say there are cases where conspiracy theories are prima facie rational given particular evidence and the like. And we should be working with ordinary language usage whenever possible to try and capture how people talk about these things. Now, of course, you know from my work, I disagree. I think a stipulative definition is the way to go about these things because it helps with the analysis of these things called conspiracy theories. But no, Cody has a very different start point, and I think that then explains a lot of where this article and his subsequent work is going to go. Mm. So he carries on looking at um, the, the, the sort of Keeley-Clark definition. Um, he says, the first thing he, he has to say of it is that the requirement that the number of conspirators be relatively small is quite counterintuitive. He, he seems to think that um, uh, we, we, we assume that sort of uh, conspiracy theories could have lots of people in them, and indeed sort of the, the more 
cons- the, the more conspiratorial a theory is, the more people will be involved. Which I I, I don't know. I I, that, I, I just kind of glossed past that. Really, it um, it seemed it seemed an, an interesting point, but didn't really seem to have much of a bearing on anything. Um, Actually, but he goes well, on to no, say, no, no, so um, there's one other point mm-hmm. there, which is kind of interesting. So he's going look. This idea that conspiracies are meant to be small for them to be plausible is kind of odd because the really big conspiracies seem to be the most exemplar form of conspiracy theory we find in the literature. And then he goes, look, the more members of a conspiracy, the more conspiratorial that conspiracy is going to be. And that just seems like a really odd thing to say because surely a conspiracy is a conspiracy – whether there are two people working in secret towards some end, or 4,922 people working in secret towards some end. As soon as two or more people work in secret towards Mm. some end, it is conspiratorial. It's not more conspiratorial if there are more people involved. It's just a bigger conspiracy. Yes, yes. An odd thing to say, but um, doesn't have much bearing on what comes next. Now, what does come next, though is Cody says a more significant problem with the Keeley-Clark definition is that it lacks any requirement of success. And, yeah, that that was the first thing that really struck me. That only makes sense if you're insisting that the definition has to be more like um, the colloquial definition. Because, I mean, I've said in the past, I remember one time uh, I was talking to, I I was about to head off to go and record uh, an episode back when we co-located. Um, and my wife had a friend over, and I sort of we were just saying as I left, I'm about to go off and do this podcast about conspiracy theories. And she said, oh, so what are you talking about? And I said, oh, I, um, uh, we're, we're doing the Volkswagen emissions scandal. And then she seemed surprised. It was kind of like, how's that a conspiracy theory? Because A, it's true, and B, it kind of didn't work. But... So that, but that that was sort of the colloquial understanding. But for the way Keeley and Clark define conspiracy theories, like I don't see that's a problem for their definition at all. Um, and and I think even even sort of in a more colloquial, quote unquote, real world sense, I wasn't sure about that one really because, like, if you look at say the legal world, conspiracy to commit fraud, commit murder, or whatever, is a completely different crime from, say, murder, and if if it was part of a conspiracy's definition that it had to be successful, then those would kind of be one and the same crime, really. Um, the fact that you can be convicted of conspiracy to commit murder without actually successfully murdering anyone would suggest that even even outside of the academic definition, that one doesn't really apply so much. And indeed, there's a kind of weirdness to anything which is a success criteria when it comes to conspiracy, which is well, how are we measuring success? So take, for example, the assassination of Julius Caesar, an example that I mention an awful lot in my PhD thesis. Depending on who you talk to, that was either a very successful or a very unsuccessful conspiracy. Because one of the aims of the conspiracy was the killing of the dictator, Julius Caesar. But one of the other aims of the conspiracy was to elevate Brutus to a position of power within the Roman Republic and basically replacing Caesar as dictator. So on one level, they were successful in removing one dictator and absolute failures in replacing that dictator with another in the form of Brutus, because as we know, you end up getting Augustus as Caesar in the end. 
So once you start bringing in the idea that you need to measure a conspiracy theory with respect to success of the secretive plot of conspirators, then you also open up a huge can of worms as to, so what do we mean by success in this particular situation? Including, as you point out, examples of things which are clearly conspiracies, even though they actually failed to achieve anything. Although, of course, with the VW thing, they achieved things for a while, they mm. just didn't achieve the ultimate success of never being caught. Getting away with it, yes. Um, and indeed, uh, if you look at, say, um, the assassination of uh, Archduke Franz Ferdinand, which was certainly the result of a conspiracy, um, I'm quite certain the conspirators didn't intend to start a world war, um, and yet an explanation of the start of the world war surely involves this thing which we would want to call a conspiracy. Precisely. So, sort of, the, the, yeah, the... the, 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 the um, goals and what actually happens can can diverge quite a lot. So there's that, and then and then furthermore, um, Cody goes on to say the most important feature missing from the Keeley Clark definition is the requirement that a conspiracy theory conflict with an official explanation of the event in question. And so again, my reading of that is. Sorry, who says a conspiracy theory has to conflict with an official explanation of uh, of, of the event? And indeed, if, if you've listened to this podcast for any length of time, you know that's sort of one of the things we've explicitly at times said a conspiracy theory doesn't have to involve. But again, I suppose, and I, I think that, that this is possibly more what my wife's friend was thinking of with the VW thing, because it was very much a, an official announcement that VW had been up to these dodgy things. So um, if... Again, you think it should match with people's um, people's people's colloquial use of the term, then yeah, okay. People do often think that you have the official version and the conspiracy theory. You have the official version of the Kennedy assassination and the conspiracy theories. The official version of what happened in nine eleven and the conspiracy theories, even though we would say that they're both conspiracy theories. And I mean, there's um, a there's a metaphysical issue here, which is what happens when your conspiracy theory becomes the official theory over a period of time. The Moscow Show Trials being a great example of this. It was a conspiracy theory that they were sham or mock trials run by Stalin according to the Cody story here. But now it's the accepted orthodoxy that actually it was a giant conspiracy by the Soviets to hide the fact that the trials were shams. So it started off as a pejorative conspiracy theory in opposition to an official theory that the trials were free and fair, and now it's accepted that the official theory was in fact a conspiracy theory by the Soviets to cover up the fact that the conspiracy theory that the Soviets were lambasting as being disinformation was in fact actually the official theory now the trials were a sham. You, you mm. just don't need to bring in this official theory stuff to talk about conspiracy theories. It does more harm than good. Mm. Yeah, and I think, as I recall, this is going to come up again a little bit later. Um, and it's perhaps not as much of a problem for Cody as it, as it might appear, but still. Um, so, yeah, I mean, continuing in this line, um, he says, both Holocaust acceptance and Holocaust denial fit the Keeley Clark definition of a conspiracy theory. And he means this as a criticism, and yet I would just say, yeah, that's that's true. 
Um, yeah, the official o- version of 9 11 is a conspiracy theory. If you assume that conspiracy theories have to conflict with some kind of official theory, but mm. if Keeley and Clark don't require that, then it's not a problem for their particular view. Mm. So Cody, from his particular view, ends up uh, recommending the following three-part definition. A conspiracy theory is a proposed explanation of a historical event in which conspiracy, i.e. agents acting secretly in concert, has a significant causal role. Furthermore, the conspiracy postulated by the proposed explanation must be a conspiracy to bring about the historical event which it purports to explain. Finally, the proposed explanation must conflict with an official explanation of the same historical event. The last part of this definition rules out the possibility of an official explanation of an event qualifying as a conspiracy theory, no matter how conspiratorial it is. Uh, To me, that just feels uh, contrived. It just feels official. You've taken the definition and then slapped a couple more criteria on the end of it just because. But um, No, see, the reason why he's doing this... Because he's coming from another angle. He's trying to make the terminology fit ordinary usage. Now, the problem with this is it's actually not clear that ordinary usage precludes official theories from being conspiracy theories. People have studied this. People like Michael J. Wood, and if we ever move away from simply doing the philosophical literature to looking at the social psychological literature, we'll encounter his work. And Wood has looked at the way that people talk about conspiracy theories when you poll them, and it turns out that people don't think that conspiracy theories are necessarily in opposition to some official theory about the world. So it turns out it's not clear that ordinary usage says conspiracy theories are unwarranted theories that go against conventional wisdom. So you don't need to do any of this work because it's actually not clear ordinary usage is easily captured by it anyway. Hmm. Um, so having got the definitions out of the way, he starts looking more at um, uh, Brian L. Keeley's paper. Um, he does point out, as other people have, as we've seen, that um, Keeley has a little bit of a problem in that he, he sort of switches sometimes between specifically talking about unwarranted conspiracy theories and just conspiracy theories, and it's not always clear has he now switched to actually talking about conspiracy theories in general, or does he still mean unwarranted conspiracy theories and he's just using that, he's just shortening the phrase, Um, which Cody seems to take as possibly a little bit sinister, but um, I'm not sure if that wasn't any more than just uh, just, uh, carelessness on Keeley's behalf. And I think in part because Brian and Charles were kind of, (laughs) <laughs> Come over you all just, emotional. You just yes, choked it up there. Yeah. Pride and Charles, it's just so good. Why so can't good. they just get on? <laughs> so, I mean, they've, they've got the same idea. Well, I think because they're both basically creating a literature out of whole cloth, it's, un, it's understandable that there's some language slippage going on in that discussion. It's easy to ping people after the fact for not being cautious about the way the way they use terms but when people are inventing terminology to discuss some phenomenon it's understandable they may not get it right every single time hmm. Um, but at any rate, that was more of a more of a side note, really. Um, Cody goes on to look at Keeley's claims about errant data. So you'll recall that in his paper, Brian L. Keeley talks about the fact that um, conspiracy theories 
can be attractive because they can explain away errant data that, that, that looks like it could be a problem for the official theory, and yet um, Keeley's point is that, well, actually, that's kind of a problem because in any set of data, some of the data is going to be wrong. Um, and so any theory that looks to explain every single little bit of data, even stuff that looks like it might be errant, it might conflict with the, the main theory in some way, um, you should probably actually be suspicious of. Um, but Cody, Cody goes in a different direction. Um, he says... Keeley and Clark are wrong, however, to claim that conspiracy theories always attempt to explain more than the received alternative does. Conspiracy theories do tend to offer putative explanations of data unexplained by or apparently in conflict with the received alternative, but the received alternative will also, unless it is a transparent fabrication, attempt to explain data unexplained by or apparently in conflict with its conspiratorial rivals. And it uh, it seemed to me he's, he seemed to be getting towards the fact that it's not just that it's not necessarily that conspiracy theories explain more data. Sometimes they pick different data as being salient. Is that yeah? So the, the example he uses is if you take the official theory for the assassination of JFK by the assassin Lee Harvey Oswald, the official theory says there were three shots fired. Now this data is errant to a whole bunch of conspiracy theories about the assassination of JFK that claim there were more shots fired. So those theories have to explain away why an awful lot of air witnesses to the assassination report three and only three gunshots. That data is errant to the conspiracy theories about JFK's death. Now, part of the problem for Cody's account here is he's going, well, look, Keeley's wrong because he talks about errant data, and errant data applies to non-conspiratorial official theories of the same explanation. But, of course, as we saw earlier in the paper, Keeley doesn't have to bite the bullet on conspiracy theories having to be contra some official theory of the event anyway. So Keeley can go, yeah, you're right. If there's more than one conspiracy theory for a particular event, then it is going to be the case that one of those conspiracy theories, which may have been endorsed by people in positions of authority, also has data errant to some rival conspiracy theory, which hasn't been endorsed by someone in a position of authority. So there's no particular issue for my account, says Keeley, if you're, if you're making this claim. Mm. Um, and then we see something similar when he goes on to look at um, Keeley's claims about scepticism. If you recall, Keeley's, at least in his, um, in his initial um, of, hang on, I'm getting wrong, yeah, of conspiracy theories, um, said that really the biggest thing, uh, the biggest problem with these unwarranted conspiracy theories is that they can, as they go on, they, they re require you to become more sceptical and more sceptical in the sense that, you know, uh, you think the moon landings were faked, well, hang on, NASA says it wasn't. Okay, well, all of NASA must be into it. We can't believe what they say, but it was also on TV. Okay, well, we can't believe anything the news says. And then the government said, well, we can't believe anything the government says. And they can sort of snowball until you're having to be sceptical of everything, which is not um, not 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 practical uh, or, or, I guess, epistemologically virtuous, would you say? I don't mm, know. Yeah. Um, but um, Cody, Cody doesn't really buy that. Although I, it, it seems he 
it seemed a little bit pedantic to me, some of his objections. He really zooms in on things like their talk about Holocaust revisionists and so on by saying, well, actually, you know, these Holocaust revisionists, David Irving, the main one being, um, isn't, isn't a universal skeptic. Um, and says, yeah, he doesn't believe in this conspiracy theory because he's skeptical of everything. He believes in it because he's an anti-Semite. Um, he says, uh, so Cody says, uh, the quote, Keeley and Wilson may admit all this, but insist that their point is not that Holocaust revisionists actually tend to be radical skeptics, but just that their views entail radical skepticism and entailment that they may or may not recognize. I don't agree. As noted, a conspiracy theory, unlike a sceptical hypothesis, is offered as an actual explanation, not as an alternative possible, possible explanation. The radical conspiracy theorist seeks not to undermine belief as such, but to replace our current beliefs with different beliefs, which didn't really make, an obje uh, make sense to me as an objection. Um, if you're saying that these conspiracy theories entail uh, uh, overly sceptical viewpoint, even if the people making it don't actually realise that that's what they that, that they're ultimately implying is, um, then why does it matter that they don't intend to undermine belief? Uh, that just means they haven't followed their what their views to the logical end point of it. Yeah, and actually, this is a point where um, when I was having a conversation with this with Keeley a few weeks ago. He actually wants to chase this up because he feels that this is something which people have not really paid much attention to. Because, yes, it's not the case that people who put forward these conspiracy theories like Holocaust denialism are trying to engender radical scepticism. It's more to generate that particular hypothesis in the first place requires you to distrust the way that we normally form knowledge in our epistemic communities which means you give up on a whole lot of bases for knowledge in your epistemic community, which means that as a consequence, you must become quite sceptical about a lot of other things that come from the same bases as well. So you might not be willing to admit that actually, if I doubt this thing, I should doubt this thing as well, but it should be a consequence to anyone who is analysing your view to go, yeah, but if you believe this then how can you believe this, 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 and this as well without being inconsistent? Mm. And I think at this day and age, there are a lot more um, arguments that show, uh, or examples rather, that showed us a bit more clearly, I mean, especially the QAnon stuff. I mean, here you have people who basically are, are, are seem to be quite happy to say, yep, can't trust anything except Donald Trump and Q, essentially. The, the, all, all media, all mainstream media, can't trust any of that. All the politicians, all, all the Democrats, all of them, it's, it's the swamp, it's the deep state, can't trust any of that. And they seem quite happy with that level of scepticism, although... As a side note, it always one of the things that sticks with me a little bit is the fact that you have all these people saying you can't trust anything at all, except me and these YouTube videos that I've looked at. Uh, believe me when I say what I'm saying, but completely distrust anything else. Uh, we, we had an interesting email just this week uh, that you forwarded to me of uh, someone wanting to talk to us about how COVID's fake and, and obviously a PSYOP, which you can see when you compare it to the 9-11 PSYOP and lots of PSYOPs, all the ops. Yes, I have I, I, I have not responded to that email yet. No, I'm, I'm leaving I it to the point where I've got, that. I've got the right set of mind to go, okay, so here's my response to these particular claims. Mm. And now, here, here, here's the point that we mentioned before. 
still talking about uh, Holocaust revisionism and skepticism, what have you, um, Cody says, although here and now belief in the Holocaust does not qualify as a conspiracy theory because it also has official status, there was a time and place, i.e. Nazi-occupied Europe, in which what would now be called Holocaust revisionism was the official story, and belief in the Holocaust was belief in an accurate conspiracy theory. To believe in the Holocaust was to deny the official story that the Jews were merely being resettled. And that was what jumped out at me and said exactly what you just said before. So hang on. So... so that means that some, a if a conspiracy theory can't be an official theory, and yet it's possible for something to go from being official to being unofficial or vice versa, that means it's possible for something to go from being a conspiracy theory to not being a conspiracy theory, even though the actual content of the theory hasn't changed in any way. Um, and that, that, you know, that immediately I was like, oh, hang on, that, that sounds like a problem. Although reading further down, it didn't actually sound like a problem for Cody given what he ends up saying eventually, as we'll see, he talks about saying that sort of the social context is important. So if the context changes, I guess he would say, yeah, actually, that, that's fine. If the context changes, then whether or not it's a conspiracy changes, because the, the social context is important. But that also becomes a problem if you think that we should be trying to map conspiracy theory onto an ordinary language use, because that shows that the ordinary language use of what conspiracy theory is is not settled, which means why try and capture an unsettled notion of what counts as a conspiracy theory if that subject change? Why not work with a stipulative definition that says it's one particular thing and then do the analysis and add in that in your language community you may have an initial intuitive response to this, but here's a reason to disregard it. Mm. Um, so having looked at that, um, he then, then turns his eye to um, Steve Clark's, Steve Clark's uh, Conspiracy Theories and Conspiracy Theorizing, uh, which if you recall, when we looked at that, um, Steve Clark, at least in his initial paper, um, said that he, he believed that Keeley was wrong and that the real thing that makes conspiracy theories unwarranted is that they rely on the fundamental attribution error, the psychological phenomenon where people... Uh, What's the terminology again? They look for a dispositional explanation yeah. rather than a situational yeah. one. Yeah. Have I got that right around here? Um, and Cody, Cody basically says that he thinks that's wrong because the fundamental attribution error is wrong and that people don't actually make this mistake. And he refers to other, other um, psychological studies that have been done that he thinks shows that the fundamental attribution error is not true, which... Um, uh, is, is that is that is that okay? Is that kosher? Yeah, no, to be in it, one it, discipline it, talking about whether the something in another discipline is right or wrong. It's basically pointing out that the kind of studies that argue for the fundamental attribution error tend to overplay dispositional factors and underplay situational fa factors. So to actually find to then go, well, hold on, the description of the state of affairs you've provided hinges entirely upon saying X has disposition Y and downplaying situation Z. But actually, if we talk about how situation Z impacts upon disposition Y, then that changes the entire story for X. So that, and I mean, this is a, this, it's, it's not cited here, but Cody is getting this criticism from people who are criticizing the fundamental attribution error mm. in the, in the domain of psychology. So it is actually a problem which is admitted to there as well. 
Okay. Uh, but yes, right, right or wrong at any rate, he, he eventually points out um, a problem that you get with appealing to the fundamental attribution error, um, as he puts it. The problem is not just that there's insufficient evidence for the existence of the fundamental attribution error, it's that belief in the phenomenon is itself deeply paradoxical. Those who say there's a widespread tendency to commit the fundamental attribution error themselves seem to be committing that very error. After all, if we do exaggerate the important of dispositions in our explanations of behaviour, this is itself a disposition, which purports to explain a great deal of our behaviour. The more we explain by appeal to the fundamental attribution error, the more we will ourselves be committing the fundamental attribution error. Belief in the fundamental attribution error appears to be self-refuting in much the same way that naive set theory and logical positivism are, and that's too many times to say the phrase fundamental attribution error in a short amount of time. But I think I managed it. Congratulations. Well done. You probably deserve mm. an award. Probably. So, yes, interesting point. Um, that, yeah, I mean, we ended up not being convinced, as I recall, by Steve Clark's appeal to the fundamental attribution error anyway. Um, but that does seem to be a, a, a more forceful way, I guess, of arguing against appeals to it. Yeah. And I mean, the problem with the fundamental attribution error is it does tend to present explanations as being predominantly dispositional and ignoring the fact that the said explanations also engage in situational factors as well. So it's quite easy to take any dispositional explanation and then recast it in situational terms, at which point the FAE just disappears. And that's the problem with the FAE analysis. It, it kind of goes, dispositions are really important. And then people go, but hold on, re-describe the situation in situational terms, and the dispositions don't seem particularly important at all. So are they? Hmm. And frankly, this is all, all beyond my kin, to be honest, your fundamental attribution errors and what have you, so I'll just take the word for it. Um, and so having looked at having looked at Keeley and then looked at Clark, um, Cody comes up to his conclusion, which again, um, again, I was left with the feeling that they're sort of talking past each other a little bit. Um, he says, both Clark and Keeley contrast conspiracy theories with their official non-conspiratorial rivals. And I thought, do they? It has been a little while, I guess, since we've talked about them. Do, what do they say about official... Theories, if anything, not particularly much. Because I couldn't, yeah, I couldn't remember much. Um, uh, but anyway, Cody carries on. But quite often, the official version of events is just as conspiratorial as its rivals. And again, I I sort of read that and thought, yeah, and that's that's kind of what Keeley and Clark say, isn't it? That the, the official version and the the the, the quote unquote conspiracy theory version are both, or at least can, both actually be conspiracy theories. Now, of course, what might be happening here is that Cody might be engaging in entirely the thing that he criticised Keeley for, which is mixing up his unwarranted conspiracy theories with his conspiracy theories. Because yeah. when Keeley is talking about unwarranted conspiracy theories, mature conspiracy theories that have not amounted much evidence over time, and thus stink like a bad cheese, then they tend to exist in contrast to an accepted explanation of the event. But of course, that's only particular conspiracy theories, the unwarranted conspiracy th theories, which have that particular issue. So Cody appears to be making the same mistake that he claims Keeley made, which is mixing up 
the broader class with the narrow class. Hmm. Um, but so having said that official events can be just as conspiratorial as the unofficial, uh, sorry, of official theories can be just as conspiratorial as uh, their rival theories, he says, when this is the case, that is the unofficial explanation that will inevitably attract the label conspiracy theory with all its negative connotations. The degree to which this label deserves those connotations depends to a large extent on the diversity and transparency of the mechanisms for gathering and disseminating information in the society in question. And so here he starts going into um, that whole, the stuff that we've seen Keeley talking about, and especially uh, Lee Basham and Keeley going back and forth on the whole uh, trustworthiness of society, public institutions, and all that sort. Um, and as we've said, you know, as we said before, depending on the sort of society you you live in, as you've, you've talked about, Romania being a much more um, uh, conspiracy-ridden, I suppose, society. So therefore, in that sort of thing, your, your attitudes towards conspiracy theories might be different. And so he says. As we're looking at, the legitimacy of conspiracy theorizing is therefore highly dependent on social context. This means that we cannot hope to distinguish between warranted and unwarranted conspiracy theories on the basis of content alone. Which, when I read that, I said, ah, oh, okay, so where I was saying before, gosh, isn't it a problem that a conspiracy could change, a theory could change from a conspiracy theory to not being a conspiracy theory because it's official now? even though the content doesn't change, well, okay, maybe that's not a problem for Cody because he specifically says that the content alone isn't enough to say whether or not something's warranted or unwarranted. Yeah. Um, and then and then out comes the Aristotle. And so, again, as I saw this at the end, it made me think, oh, okay, maybe this is where he's coming from at the beginning, a more Aristotelian, Aristotelian rather, bent. Um, so, I mean, Cody, like like... like all of the other people we've read is, d d doesn't want to say we should dismiss all conspiracy theories out of hand. He wants to. He does, does want to be able to say, you know, look, we, if if we allow people to write stuff off as just a conspiracy theory, a people as just a conspiracy theorist, that's that can be a bad thing. Um, so we need to do something about that. And his proposal is. <clears throat> I propose an Aristotelian approach to the issue, according to which the intellectual virtue of realism is a golden mean between the intellectual vices of paranoia and naivety. Paranoids will be predisposed to believe that, in their society at least, official information is untrustworthy. Naifs, on the other hand, will be inclined to believe the opposite. Both groups will hold their attitudes sacred. A realist, by contrast, adopts an attitude of reflective equilibrium toward official information on the one hand and conspiracy theories on the other. Her attitude towards conspiracy theories will depend on the extent of her prior trust in officialdom, but this trust will itself be open to the possibility of being undermined by warranted conspiracy theories. Now, I've got to say, I, 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 I never quite got a handle on, on Aristotelian virtue ethics, um, but this does seem to be that kind of a thing, and I know there are a lot of a lot of virtue ethicists out there. So is this sort of virtue epistemology? Uh, there is such a thing as virtue epistemology mm. and vice epistemology. So if you're aware of how virtue ethics works or the virtues work, the virtues are kind of a middle ground between the vices. So the virtue of honesty sits somewhere between the vice of being deceitful, but also the vice of being too honest. The honest person who has the virtue of honesty knows there are some situations where honesty 
is not the best policy. And you don't want to lie, but you want to get around having to state what you actually think, such as a situation where honesty might get you killed or may lead to a loved one feeling badly to... to toward you and so vice epistemology kind of deals with both of those particular extremes that the virtue epistemologist is someone who has all the epistemic virtues that come from practical wisdom and allows them to have the right orientation towards knowing things about the world without being misled by the vices which might make them either not get information or overinterpret information in a way which is vice-ridden. Mm. Um, so as a, as a, as a footnote, um, Cody says, Aristotle spoke of the importance of identifying exemplars of the virtues to model ourselves on. Not surprisingly, the people I think of as exemplars of the virtue of realism are frequently portrayed as paranoid conspiracy theorists in the media and in the academy. A short list of people I consider exemplary realists would include Noam Chomsky, Edward Said, and Gore, Gore Vidal. I'm not quite sure why he thinks it's surprising that um, exemplars of the virtue of realism are often said to be paranoid conspiracy theorists? Is it just because he thinks that the, the, the media or the mainstream are too far towards the vice of, of, of naivety? Also, I'd be a little bit cautious about two of the members of that group. So Edward well, Said yes, and Gord a... Vidal are not exactly people that I necessarily think of being exemplary thinkers said with orientalism and Gore Vidal with his really weird conspiracy theories about what America was actually doing during World War II and his isolationist policies don't seem like realists as per se fantasists but you know that's just me mm. that's anyway that, 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 as I say that was a footnote so it's just his little take on things um, so now we come to the very end of it so um uh, Cody's final words on the subject are This raises the issue of how much of herself the realist will devote to pursuing conspiracy theories. On the one hand, Lee Basham is surely right that the constant search for evidence of conspiracy can blind us to what is good in life. Not only does paranoia endanger us epistemically, making both error and ignorance more likely, it can also undermine our happiness. On the other hand, naivety entails the same epistemic dangers and its own distinctive moral danger. The moral danger of excessive willingness to believe authority, like the moral danger of excessive willingness to obey, to obey authority, is moral cowardice. Naivety makes it too easy for us to think that we can avoid responsibility for a state of affairs by appealing to the fact that we were not told about it. We may have had a duty to find someone who can tell us. Internet technology has made it much easier for us to fulfil this obligation. Now, I want to point out so, there's a bit of sleight of hand here in that... He's, he's going, on the one hand, Lee Basham says this thing, but on the other hand, consider this. But Lee Basham also says the stuff which is on the other hand. It's just that, at least in his earlier papers, he goes, well, look, what can you do? Pragmatically, you can't do anything against these malevolent global conspiracies. So you might as well act in a particular way. But he's also saying, even so we need to be vigilant because eternal vigilance is the price of our freedom. And David's not really admitting that Lee is making that claim at the same time. Hmm. So what, um, what sort of effect is, has this um, had in the world of conspiracy theory theorizing? Because it seems 
there are there have been some slight sort of divisions in what we've seen, or at least people with with different takes on the same thing. But this seems to be another kind of another division again. Are there are there sort of are there schools of thought? Are there factions within conspiracy theory theorizing? How does this go? I mean, there are factions in that you've got people like Kwasam Kassam, whose work we'll get to eventually, who exist in opposition to most of the rest of us writing in the philosophy of conspiracy theory. There really isn't a faction of, say, Keeley versus Basham versus Cody. There's more overlap of agreement than there is whole-scale disagreement. What does happen next is David Cody produces an edited collection on conspiracy theory for Ashgate, Conspiracy Theories, the Philosophical Debate, which this article is reprinted in as a chapter. And so very soon, we'll be looking at the fruit of that particular work, which includes people like Pigton, like Keeley, like Basham, and like Clark. So what Cody does is generate subsequent discussion, which is basically where I come in, because the publication of Conspiracy Theories, a Philosophical Debate, was instrumental in getting my PhD off the ground. Mm. And that um, last week we talked about the um, Wikipedia entry on the philosophy of conspiracy theories, in which you make an appearance. Uh, is that, 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 that's the volume, because I know David Cody came up a lot on that page. Is that specifically this, this volume it of is, his yes. that it was referring yes, to? Yes, it yeah, is. yeah, that's how it seemed. Um, so there you go. More philo- ph- uh, more conspiracy theory masterpiece theatre. What the hell am I talking about? Conspiracy theory masterpiece theatre episode done. Um, and yeah, yeah, interesting to see uh, a bit more contrary. I guess I mean that we we've seen disagreement in the other stuff we've looked at, but that seemed to be a, a slightly slightly more disagreement than we're used to. Um, but uh, that's it for now. So next week, next week, I understand we have an interview of some sort. We so... do. I'll be talking with mm. Byron Clark, who has a YouTube channel which does some excellent work looking at alt-right material in Aotearoa, New Zealand. We will be talking about a recent interview on the Action Zealandia podcast with Kerry Bolton, who, if you don't remember who Kerry Bolton is, shame on you, New Zealand listeners, and also be he's our most prominent right-wing pseudo in intellectual so we'll be talking a little bit about what he's been up to when being interviewed by our local alt-right group action zelandia but before then we've got a patron bonus episode coming up and of course we, We we have to deal with the big story which occurred yesterday morning that big old explosion in Beirut. Now, did you see, yes. did, did you find out about the story before or after you watched a video of the explosion? Uh, no, the explosion videos were the first thing I saw. Yeah, I just saw a tweet feed, saying yeah. you've got to watch this. And mm. it was the first thing I did waking up. So I did. And then I went, did that just what happen? What the hell was that? Which did give yeah. me a lot of memories of the morning of September 12th here back in 2001, Mm. but we'll talk about that later on. So we'll be talking about Beirut. We'll be talking about COVID-19. We'll be talking a lot about COVID-19, truth be told. 
And then we've got a fascinating Jacob Wall update. Hmm. Yep, he's at it again. Just when you think we won't have anything to talk about, he shows up and does something else. But, I mean, stupid. this time he really has done something else. This is this goes well beyond your usual Jacob Wall information. So we've got that mm. to look forward to. Or at least yes. you've got that to look forward to. You've got that to look forward to if you're a patron. And if you are, thank you very much. Uh, if you're not a patron but you're still listening, thank you very much for that as well. Uh, but if you'd like to be a patron, uh, go to patreon.com and search for the Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy. You get these bonus episodes. You get access to the Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy Discord, uh, where we broadcast live as we record these things. Um, Sometimes do that people even listen in. Sometimes they do. We, we do it in New Zealand evening time, which we acknowledge is not the best time for people in other parts of the world. So we're looking at maybe a special one that we do at a more accessible time slot for people um, in other time zones. But at any rate, you get all that. Uh, so if you'd like to do that, feel free. But if you don't, keep on listening and um, just, just, just form our audience and bolster our egos that way. We appreciate that also. I also would like to point but out now, that a few weeks ago, we did ask people to write in if they had issue with the drunk podcast. No one has written in to say they had no. issue with my drunk podcasting. So I'm assuming it's all go for even it's more go. drunken podcasting yep. in future. So remember, you should be you as don't drunk like, as possible at all times. If you don't like drunken podcasting, you do need to get in contact because otherwise it is going to happen again. We can't stop it, quite frankly. No, I mean, it's just, it's just, it's just natural. It, mm, these things mm, happen. Yep, it's, it's the laws of physics. Uh, but anyway, that's the end of this episode, I think. Good old, good old uh, Conspiracy Theory Masterpiece Theatre always keeps the content coming. So until next week... Or until a moment from now, and if you happen to be listening to the bonus episode after this. Or you happen to be uh, chaining through a whole bunch of old well, e yep, episodes you could, trying you could to be catch doing up. That. It could be the future where you are. It could be it could be it could be decades. It could be centuries into the future, frankly. And you've stumbled upon this podcast, and now you're binging your way through the whole lot imagine, into your subcranial uh, brain implants or however things work. If we were the only cultural artifact left from the early Ooh. 21st century. God, that wouldn't be a good look. No, no, to, I mean, that means honest, uh, we have to do a lot more pop culture stuff. I suppose we do have to, more responsibility to yeah, tell yeah. people about to things future generations. They, I mean, mm. We need to go on about the fact there's a Blu-ray release of Split Second coming out, and I'm so excited by the idea. Mm. Mm. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah. If you are listening from the future, um, Split Second was a very good film, maybe possibly the best film, and that's all you need to know about movies. It was. The, it was the, the Citizen Kane of movies. Mm. Anyway, I think we're done. I think we're done for now. So I'm just going to say goodbye and leave the rest to you. And I'm going to say toodly plop plop. Hooray! You've been listening to the podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy, starring Josh Addison and Dr. MRX Dented, which is written, researched, recorded, and produced by Josh and M. You can support the podcast by becoming a patron via its Podbean or Patreon campaigns. And if you need to get in contact with either Josh or M, you can email them at podcastconspiracy at gmail.com or check their Twitter accounts, Mikey Fluids and Conspiracism.
And remember, it's just a step to the left.